Welcome to you all. Hope you'll thoroughly enjoy our program. Britannia podcast, a very British podcast about very British movies with just a hint of professionalism. Good morning, Scott here. It's our Halloween special. It's possibly one of the finest British horror movies ever made, if not one of the finest horror movies ever made. It's Dead of Night from 1945. With me, as usual, is my good friend Stephen. Good morning, sir. Good morning, and uh, we have uh, room for just one more inside, oh, don't we? Sorry, he's been nice. to say that. Hello, Anthony. <laughs> Hi to you and Stephen and all the Real Britannia listeners around the world. There could be someone in Swaziland, as we speak, who's downloaded this episode. So Hi we, to him or her. We do get listeners in the most bizarrest of places. We love every single one of them for, for taking the time out. It baffles me that somebody in Brazil is listening to this, you know. Uh, yes, they are. Dead of Night. Before we get cracking, I, I take it it is very familiar to the pair of you, this movie, before you watched it this time around. Yeah, I was thinking about it. I think, I'm sure it was a movie drone. I'm sure we've mentioned movie drone loads of times, mm. haven't we? But it's like a series on Sunday nights where they play a, like a cult film. Yeah. And then have Alex Cox or Mark Cousins or someone do a little intro. And I remember Alex Cox doing an impression of the German doctor. I, was, I just remembered that. So <laughs> this was definitely a movie drone one that I taped off the telly, watched God knows how many times. But then I haven't seen it for years. Like I saw it probably about seven or eight years ago. And then I just watched it the other night. Okay. Absolutely love it. Brilliant. Stephen, similar sort of experience for yourself, I take it? It must have been back then when I first saw it. I think this is actually only the third time maybe I've seen it. In its entirety i think i've seen bits of it more often but yeah it's in its entirety it must be the third time but um yeah it, w- it was one of those um late night you know as you say alex cox or somebody else you know like me and and, and yourselves have, have discussed before you know catching films at silly o'clock um on a friday or saturday night yeah that's it, and it's similar for me. I, I can't remember if it was the movie drone screening was my first viewing of it, but it would have been about that time, possibly early to mid-80s was the first time mm. I've seen it, and I've probably seen it three or four times. I bought the brand-new sort of Blu-ray copy, specially for this broadcast today, and it looks absolutely spectacular. You know, the, the transfer looks absolutely wonderful. So I've watched it in the best possible conditions, apart from on the big screen, which I imagine would be great to see this on the big screen, actually, guys, couldn't you? This would be really creepy with an audience. I mean, you have got a big screen, in fairness. That's true. <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah, you've seen it. Mine, but, yeah. yeah. 
You always worry if you see a film after years if it holds up. This one just totally did. Certainly does. Right, okay then. Without further ado then, guys, let's take a short break. Here's the trailer. It's Dead of Night, 
the briefest of synopsis, because we've got four or five different stories here, but the briefest of synopsis, according to IMDb, architect Walter Craig senses impending doom as his half-remembered recurring dream turns into reality. The guests at the country house encourage him to stay as they take turns telling supernatural tales. I watched the documentary that was at the end of this, and I was trying to work out if this is the first time this had ever been done in this format. And this documentary that I saw on the Blu-ray had people like Kim Newman, as I said, and um, John Landis, and John Landis John as Landis, well. Yeah. yeah. And th- they were saying that, yes, it gave birth to the more familiar sort of amicus portmanteau-type horror stories and tales from the crypt that we got used to a few years later. But previously there were examples of people gathering at a house and telling story in a film, you know, but not sort of horror stories. And the interesting thing I found out as well is that this is one of the very first horror films to be made in Britain in about six years because they were banned during the war. Did you know this? Yes. Mm. Yeah, horror films were banned from production for the duration of the war. So this is one of the first movies to be made post-war. And what a cracker it is. I think we all agree. We all, we all actually love this movie. Oh, yeah, I really do. Yeah. 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 So... Who wants to start off? I mean, give us the basic premise. I've given the, a rough idea of the synopsis here, but we've got the four or five directors here and we've got the four or five stories. But can someone just sort of talk us through how it all begins and, and, and you know, what leads us into the different parts of this movie? Yeah, so you get this architect, comes to this, but gets a call. Does he get a call at the beginning? I can't remember. Yeah. Maybe he's already on the way. Does he get a call? Yeah, yeah. No, you don't see the call. No, no, the, the end. No, the call bit is the end. And then, the, yeah, the, sorry, right. So he's on the way. Important. Yeah, so he's on the way to this country house. Get this kind of slightly ominous music, I think. Yeah, he arrives and he seems to. It, Mervyn Johns, isn't it? Does a brilliant kind Excellent. of thing. He seems to be in a trance almost from the beginning, doesn't he? Because he, I think he ignores one of the guests and he, he immediately knows where to put his hat yeah. on the hat stand or Real his coat, Deja whichever Vu. one it is. Mm. And um, um, the the host is is very friendly, and uh, they obviously respect him as well. They say something about oh, a man of your talents. But Mervyn Johns is just kind of looking around the house in a in a weird trance. And then we get uh, yeah, he's introduced to a room full of people, and it's it's classic stuff. I don't know about you guys, but we some of my friends we used to go camping and stuff, and we used to tell these kind of stories, and it's fun. Mm. There's kind of a nice atmosphere about the whole thing, and the the film is a has a mix of quite disturbing stories, but quite an upbeat, weirdly upbeat atmosphere, and then a little bit of comedy, obviously. So then we get these, uh, I think it's five stories, and I think it was only three in the US version. And they're all about the supernatural, and then you get this nice, it's one of those classic sort of science versus the supernatural, because you get the, the German doctor. And I didn't think about this at all, but obviously this film came out in 1945, just after the war, and you've got a German doctor. Which is yeah, interesting. That's true. And um, yeah, there's sort of this kind of kind of well-meaning, lots of sort of barbs against this doctor who's trying to explain everything away. And you get these five stories. Yep, a couple of short ones, and then a couple which are probably about 20 minutes, 25 yeah. minutes in themselves. And that's kind of the setup, really. It's an interesting concept for something that hasn't been done too often previously, and it's something we're very familiar with. You know, this whole setup of people getting together and telling different stories or you know a film being broken into four or five different stories Mm. so at the time you can imagine you know the audience are like wow what's going on here you know we've got something that is developing into something completely different Mm. as anthony says it you know it's 
there's a tradition of it with regards to in, in his example you know sat around a campfire or it was probably yeah. in previous times you know sat around telling ghost stories or, or at christmas time particularly i think there was a tradition of selling ghost stories at christmas at one point in this country so that is as a format was established but putting that into film the research has been done by other people more than me but i am um, you know genuinely think this you know was something that was new and innovative and to some people might now look like it's it's passe but obviously that's because it has influenced so many others so exactly. you're absolutely right that what anthony said there about that you know still in more recent times people sat around a, a campfire telling ghost stories in this way where where it's moving backwards and forwards between the people telling the stories and the people who and the actual story itself but then there's something that happens in in to the storytellers um ultimately mm. and that is is great that it's, it's captured here and done so well this is the interesting thing as well it's not sort of urban legends that they're recounting it's personal experiences isn't it each story is actually linked to the storyteller it's like well this is my experience of what happened to me there's no all oh, this happened to a friend of mine is there they're all take part in their own relevant storyline don't they and particularly mm. since they are you know they are well most of them start out from the point of oh well no that's ridiculous but, <laughs> but <laughs> let me tell you this yeah, story exactly. um, Which is why the, the doctor to... being the last one of those but most of them are uh, sort of disbelieving of of, of the architect uh, until it suddenly dawns on them that they do actually have some something to input that does strengthen his case in a way. well there is one point mm. isn't there where he says i can't quite remember what happens next but i remember a dark-haired woman coming in asking with no money. for money with no money that's it yeah and then the wife who is the nurse in, in one of the stories comes in because she hasn't got money for the cab fare or something is that right it's the cat taxi yeah. fare isn't right. it? Yeah. yeah so then they start thinking oh hang on a minute you know well, the, 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 i think they're fully receptive to him they they don't dismiss him straight away they, i think they're intrigued because mm. well initially they're saying oh you might have seen me in the in the newspaper because i was <laughs> how i was photographed for this and i was yeah. photographed for that and one yeah. of them was just you know won a school prize so it was photographed for the local paper yeah. but um <laughs> the, it, it then you know then transpires that no there's more to it than that it certainly does should we go through these one by one because i think they yeah. they warrant mm. a good five ten minutes conversation each one because as we say we've got some of the finest directors literally at the beginnings of their careers here. Basil Dearden certainly had only done a few things here. And Cavalcanti, probably best known for Went the Day Well a few years early. We'll, we'll, we'll come to that as we get to each individual story. But the first one is The Hearse Driver, as it's billed here. Based on a short story, I think it was called The Bus Conductor, written by mm. E.F. Benson, published in Pall Mall magazine in 1906. So they're using stories that have been previously written. I think one of them... The last one, the ventriloquist one, was specifically written for the film. But some of them, is even H.G. Wells, isn't there, I think, wrote one of the stories. Or yes, the yeah, the golf one. Right, yeah. OK. The hearse driver. So the first of the guests gets to recount his tale of, you know, well, something spooky happened to me. And it's Hugh Granger, isn't it, I think, who was a racing car driver. Yeah. Right, so does anybody want to quickly recount what actually happens in this? Because, again, this story, over the years, has become... 
you know, quite familiar in things like The Twilight Zone or A Tales of the Unexpected. We'd have seen this sort of storyline before, but we're going right back to where it first happens here. So mm. can somebody talk us through the, the plot of this little storyline, please? He's a racing driver and um, obviously has a, a horrific accident that ends up with him in hospital. And then the, he oscillates between, you know, having the, the physical injuries actually uh, recovering but still in his mind they're having trouble making sure that they're bringing him to stability in a way and he has a thing of mistakenly calling the nurse by the wrong name and and but their relationship develops partly based upon the fact that they've got this thing of him mistaking her for somebody else and etc mm. but it, it builds up to to being that you know he's he's making full recovery and they're you know they're even a, a bet with regards to whether he'll be uh, be able to be released by a certain date it's part of the you know the recoveries is um at a certain point he is actually you know it's the end of the night the evening sort of thing and before for bed and he's um he's got some music on on a on a, a gramophone i think it is and he's you know reading but the he notices you know suddenly notices that the music has stopped and and the clock has stopped when he opens goes to the curtains because he hears a noise he goes and opens the curtains and it's not actually nighttime it's daytime there is a horse-drawn hearse seemingly waiting for him driven by none other uh, than miles malison Miles Mallison, who is a, a very familiar face, welcome to see in any film, who um, the, the comment I made uh, mm-hmm. at the beginning of this podcast, he calls up to the racing driver at the window saying, just room for one inside, sir, which, you know, obviously is disturbing mm-hmm. um, at the idea that there's a hearse waiting, wait, seemingly waiting for you. Just room for one inside, sir. That spooks him out, but uh, then he is discharged uh, uh, very soon after this and from the hospital and seemingly fully recovered. And when he, he goes to the, the, the nearest bus stop in order to make his way home, which is a, a, a you know astounding thing to let people out of the hospital and straight away onto a bus. But um, <laughs> yeah. he's queuing up to get onto the bus and he's the last one at the end of the queue. And uh, as he's about to get on the bus, he sees the face of the, of the hearse driver, who is the bus conductor, and um, the exact same line. Uh, just room for one inside uh, obviously causes him to uh, to be even more spooked, you know, um, to, to the stage where he doesn't actually get on the bus. So the bus then leaves without him, which is to his benefit, definitely, because his premonition that he'd had earlier before his own car crash about dying in a, a, an accident um, hadn't come true with regards to his own racing car dri- driving. But um, did you know, unfortunately come true because the bus does uh, swerve off the road uh, and, and plunged down an embankment, um, killing all the people on it. And obviously he has uh, narrowly escaped that premonition of death. That's the synopsis. <laughs> as far as I can, uh, I might have missed some bits, but that's uh, what I remember. I don't think there was a lot missing at all. Um, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it's... It is very sort of Tales of the Unexpected, very sort of uh, Twilight Zone, isn't it? It's it's a mini episode of one of those. What did you guys think of that one? I think it's an opening story that is one of the better ones out of the, the four or five. I think it sets a tone well for what's what's to come, that it's, it's a shorter one, and I feel that it draws people into the idea of this sort of slight twist, sort of throwback, 
or hindsight of the story being told, but it's not some of the more, you know, because if it had been some of the later ones, which as Anthony said, are, you know, about 20 minutes long, it could make people think that they're getting that as a, a full film and then suddenly they get thrown out when it returns to being another story. Whereas having this uh, as the starter, I think it's probably one of the better ones to have as, as the first one to be told, to be honest. It, it draws people in just right length and, and this, the type of story or the way it's, it's told lets people in on, on that's what is to come. Yeah, I really liked it. As I say, it's very short. This film is amazingly economical, actually, the timeline. Because when I was watching it the other night, I was like within like five minutes, they're already well into this kind of debate about science and spirituality. And then they go into this or supernatural, sorry, and then they go into this story, and it's just a few minutes. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, I like the I like the idea of. Um, I'd question whether this film's like a horror film. I don't know. I guess it gets very horrific at the very end, but I like the idea of something that's very spooky, rather than needing blood and guts and all that kind of thing. There's no jump just that, scares or anything, is there? It's not that exactly. sort of horror, and as you said, there's no blood or gore. It's yeah, it's suspense. It's almost. Hitchcockian in a way, isn't it? This thing is mm. it's, it's sort of edge of the seat stuff, certainly towards the end, as you say. I've said before a number of times in, in the past, in, and here in other podcasts, that um, I'm not a big fan of horror, yeah. Um, but that is in the sense of what is more modern take on what horror is, uh, which is that blood and, and guts and mm. jump scares and stuff. Whereas this spooky the more cerebral and suspenseful this is horror that i absolutely adore so you know mm. contradict myself at times by saying no i don't like horror but i do absolutely adore these exactly. sets of films yeah. um, there's some great camera work as well because in that scene that you were talking about where he's he thinks it's nighttime well it is nighttime the camera zooms in very slowly as you said the clock suddenly stops ticking the radio goes off and then, of course, when he opens the curtains, you get this zoom into the, the guy who looks quite a bit like Alfred Hitchcock, doesn't he, really? <laughs> they zoom right into him, and he does this weird kind of head movement when he says, just room for one more inside. I've had a tiny, slightly similar... I'm so annoying, I've got a story for almost everything, haven't I? Most, <laughs> Go for most it. Of which you are, are most a walking anecdote, true. yeah. I am, yeah, most of which are true as well. And, um, <laughs> no, I, uh, when, I was, when I was a teenager, I had a quite a severe bout of tonsillitis. Uh, probably not helped by smoking 20 Marlboro Reds a day, but anyway. <laughs> and I had a weird experience where I, I was kind of <laughs> a little bit delirious for a few days. And uh, I did actually think it was night or something, and it was actually morning. And it's quite a weird feeling. But, uh, yeah, it was a good good story, yeah. Yeah, and, it's very uh, clever, like you say, because even up to the point where he gets out of bed, has the clock actually changed time as well, hasn't it? Because I think it doesn't stop. It goes to, like, quarter past four. Because yeah, and then he looks at his watch before he gets on the bus. And it's quarter past four as well, That's doesn't it? it? And he sort of yeah, like shakes his head in sort of disbelief at that point. But it is very clever, isn't it? Because we don't know what's going to happen when he opens those curtains. And and, mm. the, and the camera then goes from the outside looking in. And as he opens the curtains, it's daylight. And then it spins around to show the hearse and, you know, the, the actual daytime scene. I don't know about mm. you guys, but... Even though I've seen this a fair few times, there was points in this movie where I was quite uneased, talking about the suspense side of things, and not that I'd forgotten what was going to happen, but even watching this, it must have been the first time in four or five years I think I've seen it, it still put me on edge a little bit in certain parts. I think something like The Shining kind of took this idea, obviously there's a, there's a little bit of gore in The Shining, but not actually that much really. Mm. 
it took it took this idea because on that documentary they were saying how influential this film was and yeah. i was trying to think of films i think it influenced psycho a little bit that'll probably be the later one of the later stories yeah it's very very influential isn't it and i think the shining took that idea of you know danny on his tricycle which is just a kid on his tricycle on one level but <laughs> you create this atmosphere with a sort of sound and camera movements i wouldn't be able to tell you exactly what they're doing but you know what i mean yep you create this this kind of mood and um just one other little thing it was interesting that john landis was on that documentary because mm. uh right at the beginning you know just after he has his accident you see him in the hospital kind of shouting out Ooh, random things i know and where he you're going flirting with a nurse you know where i'm going i know exactly I where you're going america well oh, in me. london exactly yeah. yeah i was watching it the other night i was thinking that's exactly the same but <laughs> of course it's nineteen 1940s flirting so it's more like a i've decided darling the Hello, only thing darling. you can do yes. to cure me is to marry me <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is he does because she's at the house yes. she's the one that, oh, right. that she's the one that hasn't got the money for the cab that's yeah. her that's the nurse so obviously she should, after, have, got bus, she? She should have got the bus well <laughs> <laughs> but we go back to the farmhouse after or the country cottage whatever it is after this story has been recounted and as you say anthony you know that the psychiatrist the psychologist that's there almost seems to debunk it by just saying well it's a coincidence but as i say the rest of the guests there seem more receptive to the idea that it's something a bit spooky see this is what i like yeah this is one of the things i like about this film they're all very open mm. Because I think it would just get boring if if everyone in the room. Imagine if everyone in the room was sort of piling on Craig and saying, "Oh, you're mad," or, <laughs> but they're not. You know, they're they're, they're good naturedly ribbing the doctor, yeah. so they're all very open to it. Yeah. That's what I like about it. Okay, so we move into the second story, which is told by the youngest member of the household, who's Sally Ann Howes. Now, what is Sally Ann Howes more famous for, guys? Does anyone know what film? No. Fast forward about 23, 24 years, possibly. She mm. was truly scrumptious in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Uh, yeah, yeah. So Sally Ann Howes had a very, very long career. Well, I think we've come across Sally Ann Howes previously, Stephen, in uh, the Hall of Fame, but I'll go back to her once. Yeah, she, we have. Yeah. She's seen her once before. Yeah, she's been about. And I think it was as a child actress then. And she tells the story, which is billed here as the Christmas Party, now, this mm. segment is directed by Alberto Cavalcanti, more often just known as Cavalcanti, who directed loads and loads of British movies, probably best known for Went the Day Well from about three years earlier, which is brilliant with a famous scene of Fora Heard kicking German arse, basically. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, just watch it. It's one of the greatest British movies ever made. Uh, the story... There's me saying these are based on existing stories. This is actually a screenplay by a guy called Angus MacPhail, who wrote a lot of the Hitchcock stuff, the early Hitchcock stuff. The, the TV he... series or his films? No, the films, the early oh, film right. stuff. Now, or the early British ones. Mm, yeah, there's a lot of links with regard to, like, Douglas Slocum, I think, is the lighting cameraman. And, you know, there's all these famous, famous people involved in this movie. Before I ask one of you to sort of, like, give us a brief synopsis of this part, of the movie were you both aware that he's based on a real murder no not until i watched that documentary yeah after, yeah. The, fact, after the fact i was yeah yeah um, and apparently the uh, original culprit only died at the age of 100 about two years before this exactly release so which exactly. is spooky yeah. itself. Yeah, I think so they said it was just before it came out, actually. Uh, she died in 44 april 44 oh, okay. so about a yeah. year it's a lady called constance kent 
Constance Emily mm. Kent confessed to the notorious child murder of her half-brother. And if any of you watched that recent TV series based on the book The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher, which was mm, Paddy right. Considine a couple of years ago came out, that's based on that story. It's, it's based on, on that story, same as this. So who wants to have a go at giving us a little sort of synopsis of this segment, guys? Yeah, I'll do this one. It's okay. very easy, actually. Mm. <laughs> She's at a kid's party. Uh, there's lots of younger kids, and then there's her. I'm not sure exactly how old she's supposed to be. There's her and a, and a young fellow who clearly fancies her and is flirting with her. And he, he has just got, like, the plummiest. Imagine the world's biggest plum. Imagine a, ge- <laughs> imagine a genetically modified plum. James it's, and the Giant in, plum, yeah. Yeah, James, exactly. It's in this guy's mouth, yeah. 29, 30. Off you go. Come on, quickly. Got you. It's all right. I'll go quietly. Shh. Now, I'll stop here with you. When somebody else finds us, they pack in two, like sardines. Oh, it's cold in here. Cold, eh? That better? Mm-hmm. It's no mortal cold, Sally. It's a cold from beyond the grave. What are you talking about? Believe it or not, this house is haunted. I don't believe it. But everybody around this part of the world says it is. Oh, I'll buy it. Tell me. So they've got these outrageous accents, and they're playing all these um, games that I can't remember the names of. But uh, And then, they, of course, they go to sardines, which are... Uh, Possibly outside the British Isles, no one's heard of. But it's like hide and seek. But when you when you find a person, you snuggle in with them and uh, you know maybe try your luck. But it depends on the circumstances. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah. So so Sally goes off to hide, and it's it's interesting because it's in this fairly big house, uh, which I always quite find quite fascinating. Uh, in fact, you guys were on my show. Uh, we did Sleuth, didn't we? Uh, yes. Yeah. I will get that out eventually. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Can't wait. Yeah, so you always wonder, like, in these big houses, like these little endless corridors and rooms. And anyway, she goes into a room, Sally, and finds this young boy. I can't remember. Is he crying or he's upset about something? And Yeah. Well, crying. He, yeah, he's crying. Yeah. Can you help me? What's, what's going on with the system? Well, he's, he's crying. I mean, the, the, there's a, we, we find out that the, that the room has been, you know, locked off. For oh, the duration it. of the stay, this the old nursery, as it were, by who, the woman who owns the house. In the the attempt to to hide, she finds basically a linen cupboard that, for some reason, allows her to almost like the wardrobe from *Lion and Witch in the Wardrobe* leads mm. to a different world. And she, you know, through finding that, she end, it ends up leading her to a, a passageway. By that, then she finds her way into this nursery. But it is that she at first thinks it's abandoned and it's just this old nursery that's been kept, you know, but then she hears the crying that you you just mm. alluded to. And that's what draws her in and, and keeps her in the room where she, um, you know, hears that the, the sister isn't being nice to him and, and decides oh, to, yeah. to console him and even puts him to bed and, and sings to him to put him, you know, help him sleep and, and stuff. Um, before mm. then, she is, uh, she's discovered by the uh, the people seeking her because they realise that she's gone, she's, there's nowhere to be found and the only place that she could be is a place none of them should have gone. Can I um, just test Scott for a second here? Try and make it. Well, please do. <laughs> this is my big reveal. This was in the documentary, actually, Scott. Ah. Um, so the song she, she's singing to the kid I'll give you some lyrics and see if you can tell me what song. It's something along the lines of sleep, sleep, little darling, do not cry, and I will sing you a lullaby. That's your Beatles reference. Oh, yes. Is it Golden Slumbers? 
Yes, there's a there's a traditional song called Golden Slumbers, which yeah. must go back hundreds of years. And the story was that sometime in '69, Paul McCartney was at his one of his relatives' house, maybe his cousin or something. There was a music book, and he can't read music, so he saw this. They had all these traditional songs. He saw Golden Slumbers, like the lyrics, and just made up his own song, as you do ah. if you're Paul McCartney. I'll just make up a classic song. I've got <laughs> half an hour to kill. So, yeah, that was quite that was quite weird. But um, there we go. This yeah, is... I like the story. It's obviously one of the one of the minor ones. It's again, it's very short and didn't think it was the best one, but it was still good enough. Yeah. Again, creepy. It's it's just mm. a little bit uneasy, isn't it? It's it's not well, children are to be fair. Yeah, <laughs> and that whole thing about the the kid with the biggest plum in the world in his mouth. We've mentioned this previously, Stephen, haven't we? Forties and fifties British kids in British movies are incredibly posh. I think it was the Holly and the Ivy we watched one yeah. Christmas, and they even sing posh, don't they? It's just like incredible. Well, it's, it's the thing we've said about the kitchen thing, sink. It's, it took that to finally have any children on screen that, that weren't um, giving the Queen's English. Yeah. Uh, and it's um, absolutely, even those playing the, the street urchins are, are, are still plummy, uh, plummy cockneys rather than... Plummy cockneys, mm. yeah. Yeah, I'll be honest, after hearing his voice, I was hoping that the story would end with someone punching him very hard in the face. But it in, probably wasn't going to happen, was it? Interestingly, he's one of the only speaking characters that is not listed in the cast list. Mm. There is ah. no record of that actor's name. It just got question mark. on In, in Wikipedia, it says question mark as Francis Kent, the ghost. Yeah. Oh no! I was talking about the the older boy. Ah, right. Not okay. The, yeah. But no, I don't. I don't want people to punch a little boy in the face. Come on. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's a teenage teenage boy. Oh, oh right. Yeah, right. Okay. Oh, he, he yeah, deserves you know, a punch. I'll, then. Right. I'll partially right. change my opinion of you. Like. Oh, thank you very much. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting with this film. Um, again, it sounded like I've made this up, but it's from the documentary. <laughs> it plays with the past and the present, doesn't it? Because in the first one, he gets a premonition of the present. Yeah. And in this story, and uh, the next one, I think it's the mirror one, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, yeah, it's, it's, always, it's always interesting when that happens. Yeah, and, yeah. and then we Love return it. back to the cottage, and then do we see Sally Ann Howes after that? She sort of disappears for a while, doesn't she? We don't see her. Well, isn't she taken out? Aware by her mother because she was going to stay and therefore she couldn't. She quickly recounts um, the story, doesn't she? By staying, she was going to upset the narrative of what the dream was and therefore make it untrue. But then her mother turns up and there's there's something about oh um, slapping you know that the the architect slaps her or, or something of her and the mother turns up and yeah when when, when she's told that oh he was going to slap me. Um, the mother doesn't, you know, <laughs> doesn't say, well, you can't do that to my daughter. It's more, well, could you, could you do that later? <laughs> oh. That's really funny, isn't it? Yeah, because Sally says, mother, I've got to stay. Mr. Craig is going to slap me savagely. <laughs> and the mother goes, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> well, your uncle will be disappointed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what I love about some of these old films. There's a weird kind of detachment people have. Like They don't react <laughs> to, to things that like you think, Oh, blimey. Yeah, blame me. Yeah, society apparently. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Post-war sensibilities, guys. You know, we've been through six years of hell, but this is how we behave. It's brilliant. Yeah, it's all stiff upper lips and yeah. uh, no extreme reactions. Please. No. This was another so, thing they so. mentioned in the documentary. There's no sort of reference as to what time period this film was made. Absolutely. Because, yeah. because you'd think it being September 1945, there'd be some reference to the guys returning from the war or some sort of like, you know, recounting of a you know something that had gone on over the past six years. But 
you know, I mean, if you could you could date this by the car, I suppose, where he drives up in at the beginning or whatever, but there's no real sort of indication that this is set 1945. I mean, it doesn't need to, you know, verify its own timeline, but I thought that was quite an interesting point they made on the documentary, that it is almost timeless here. Well, that makes it more refreshing in a way, doesn't it? Mm. it yeah, because it doesn't, doesn't peg it to a time. Yeah. And I don't know if, if that is also a, a deliberate thing of, you know, let's just try to get back to, to life and not dwell upon the war. We've, you know, mm. we've been through that horror. Yeah. Let's mm. have let's concentrate on a different kind of horror oh, that's meant yeah. to be entertaining rather than absolutely, mm. you know. Don't too, mention the war. Don't, yeah, mention, don't the mention the war, the war yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. Despite the German being there. Um, yeah, yeah and, and whether that is the intention that it's a it's a looking forward rather than looking back, although there's plenty of looking back in the film, you know, looking back previous to that. So as you say, it's a bit more timeless. Um, and I think the two ways of of going about um, horror and um, having a timeless version, I think you know it it, it does work better because then it, it could be any time. It it's not like, oh, that's, that is in the past. So I think, you know, they took a right approach, but I don't know if it was deliberate or not. Yeah, I don't think um, it was deliberate. Yeah, it just happened to be that way. You know, that was, that was the impression I got. Okay, we'll move on to the next segment, which is The Haunted Mirror. Now, this is a prime example, as I said, of the directors involved in this movie. At the start of their careers, it's Robert Hamer, Mm. who would go on to make Pink String and Ceiling Wax the following year with Googie Withers. We've seen him before, Stephen. He was the director of It Always Rains on Sunday. Again, Again with Googie Withers. Withers yeah. Probably best known for Kind Hearts and Coronets, another Ealing mm. movie. He's probably his best best known film. Now, this, this is Ealing, isn't it? it this is, oh, is yeah, their only horror. Mm. Yeah, mm. didn't mention. I mean, Ealing weren't known for comedies at this, time, this point anyway, were they? Still, they were just dramas, really, mm-hmm. uh, or war films, because, as I say, Went the Day Well was an Ealing movie, as far as I remember. Um, and this is by a, from a story by John Baines, again, so I'm thinking this might be an original story rather than something they've, you know, sourced out from previous works. Stephen, did you want to recount the story of The Haunted Mirror for us? Yeah, happily. It's, one of, it's actually uh, one of my favourite of the uh, the vignettes in this. Um, a wife... Uh, or a, a to-be wife, her fiance, uh, which is uh, uh, Googie Withers, decides that you know, as a present, she'll buy this antique mirror mm. for her husband to be. It's quite large and ornate, and obviously has history to it. Unfortunately, uh, when looking into it at a certain point, he is astonished and frightened to see that the the reflection around him isn't the room in which he stood, but is a different. Um, bedroom yeah. with you know rather than the more modern bed and dressing table or whatever um there's a four poster bed quite on there with you know, a, a, a roaring fire going off and etc obviously this freaks him out but you know by basically focusing his mind and trying to shake off this what he thinks is a, a delusion he can see the actual room he's in again but as things progress he further looking into the mirror over time um, more and more he's seeing this room this other room and finding it harder and harder to actually um, dispel it to the point where he eventually gets to the stage where he stood 
with his fiancée, Googie Weavers, and um, he can't actually see her stood next to him. They have a joke going on between themselves about some other man who is sweet on, on the Googie Weavers character, but um, obviously is that's going nowhere because they they have a joke about him that he's Mm. He's uh, got no chance, but um, he's useful for, you know, lists from the station and things. You know, that, that progresses, but unfortunately, it, the, the progression is also the uh, deterioration of the to-be husband's mind. And they eventually just, you know, do get married. He starts to withdraw into himself more because he's, he's withdrawing into being uh, obsessed with the, the world in this mirror. And starts to actually get um, paranoid about what his his wife is doing uh, when not with him. Uh, the wife, meanwhile, not knowing really that he's, he's he is obsessing in that way about her, happens upon the antique shop where she originally bought the mirror, yeah. and goes in and happens to see a four poster bed that matches the description that her husband uh, had made. With I think is it grapes at the top of the four poster mm. and and stuff. Then asks the question of the antique dealer and finds out that the all the items were bought as a job lot that had been previously owned by quite a, a, a rich and ostentatious guy who had killed himself 50 years before. Mm. Please, Mr Rutherford, will you tell me the story? I'm very interested. By all means, the bed and the mirror form part of the contents of the private apartments of a Mr Francis Everington, who died at Marsden Lacey in 1836. The apartments had remained unused and locked from that time to the sale. And that is his portrait, by the way. He was a man of dominating character. Arrogant, reckless, handsome, and of a violent temper. He married a very beautiful heiress, a Miss Perry. The couple retired to Mars and Lacey, where they lived contentedly for a time. Then suddenly, disaster overtook them. Out hunting one day, Everington was thrown by his horse, which then rolled on him. His spine was injured, and he was never again able to do more than drag himself a few paces from this bed. How dreadful. Yes. Unfortunately, the effects of such constraint on a man of his enormous energy was more than his mind could endure. He became morose, embittered, suspicious. Above all of his wife, quite without reason, he began accusing the poor lady of betraying him with his friends, with strangers, with his servants. Had she not been so devoted to him, she certainly would have left him, and indeed, it would have been better for her had she done so. For one day... In an access of jealous rage, he strangled her and then sat down in front of the mirror, your mirror, and cut his throat. The thing was, he didn't just kill himself. Before that, he'd um, descended into a certain amount of madness and jealousy of his uh, wife uh, allegedly having an affair, at least that's what he thought, and he'd killed her before he killed himself and killed himself sat in front of the mirror. You know, this is where she then goes back to try to uh, reason with her, her husband and, you know, to the extent of maybe just getting rid of the mirror. Unfortunately, his obsession has gone a bit too far and, and he breaks to an extent and tries to actually kill her in the same way that the previous owner of the mirror um, killed his wife. Yeah. Uh, thankfully, doesn't actually succeed, or she wouldn't be around to tell the story in the farmhouse. But it, then, um, obviously, the only way to to get around the incident and and the the horror is to get rid of the actual mirror, uh, which then ends up being uh, being smashed to pieces, which 
apparently um, could only be done in one take because they could only afford one mirror. Yeah, so. <laughs> like sense is a very ornate prop, isn't it? When you look at it, as you say, oh, there's yes. like three parts to it. And fair play to Googie Withers. She's got a really ornate sort of candlestick in her hand, I think it is. Mm. Instant, you know, sort of reaction would be to, to whack your husband over the head with that and not the mirror. But she, um, you know, she's been, been there. Yeah. She's very sympathetic, isn't she? After, just after, yeah. she's a very forward-thinking lady. Yeah. She, good old Googie. We, we love a bit of Googie with us. Don't we? Yeah, she's great. Yeah, and um, certainly somebody on the uh, Talking Pictures TV podcast that will be glad to Googie with us to be better parents. Yeah, Mel's favourite actress <laughs> is Googie with us. One of the strongest stories, I think, out of the five. Don't you guys? This one. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. As I say, perhaps yeah. my favourite, but you know, there were some other strong ones as well. But if mm. I had to pick, um, um, it's a good chance that this one would be the one I'd settle on, to be oh, fair. Right, okay. it's, uh, particularly yeah. strong, I, I like it. Yeah, it's um, and as you say, there's the idea of a mirror and that being a doorway to, to the past or the future or a different you know, world is, is something that certainly has been reused a, in a number of times since yeah, then, this period. I mean, even in in, um, in the more modern Doctor Who, um, the there, was, there, was, there was the fireplace and the mirror and, and stuff, although it's, it's to some extent a trope. Um, I think it wasn't before it was done here. I think it's done particularly well. I mean, certainly the fellow who plays the husband does particularly play a, a good job of doing this descent into, into madness. Um, I think it's subtle, but without a bit, because it could be really overwrought and overdone, really. But I think he does, you know, the trembling madness rather than the the, the sort of big thrashing, wired-out extent of it. Yeah, it's just one of the stronger ones, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Yeah, of course, I go straight for the psychology. It's interesting when he says to his wife, "I've actually started to become fascinated by it." There's definitely a part of him that's thinking that room is more exciting. <laughs> <laughs> than what you'd normally see in the mirror and uh, I like that aspect if it, if I could just pick a couple of holes just for comedic purposes I love it. the story but yeah. I like I like at the beginning the way he can will it is just by putting his head down and screwing his eyes up <laughs> and then he looks back up and he can get rid of it and then uh, I like that and um, did you notice the music gets very loud at various <laughs> points <laughs> in this film so I kind of look back on it and I, with affection it's, um, yeah, there's no we we can't pick holes in this movie at all because we just for comedic purposes. For comedic purposes, we've got a bit of comedy coming up in a minute. What I'm gonna do, yeah. guys, let's take a pause here because we've still got two main segments to come as well as the linking story to talk about. Stephen, can you get your keys? I think we'll take a trip to the village hall of fame now, about halfway through, just to see who's there. <laughs> Okay, Village Hall of Fame, new listeners. What we've been doing for the past 100-plus episodes is is making note, well, Stephen certainly has been making note, of everybody that's appeared in the movies, uh, as well as sort of producers and directors and composers and screenwriters. And if they appear more than three times on the podcast, they get inducted into our Hall of Fame. But as we always mention, we're not that worthy to have a Hall of Fame. It's a Village Hall of Fame with... 
rapidly approaching 300 inductees now. Is that right, Stephen? Is it that many? I can't remember. It's, if it's, yeah, it's over 300 now. Yeah, it's, um, it's uh, a, a packed hall. And because we've got four directors and a, not a cast of thousands as such, because the cast, you know, that appears at the cottage also appear in the mini segments as well. So, you know, we've got repetition of cast there. But I still think you may have had a little bit of your work cut out for you this time round. Yeah, I mean, it's surprisingly small cast considering, but that's, I think, as far as the cast list goes. But I do think that's because, like you said, there's a number of people who are, uh, and not named on it. I mean, there's there's probably about forty kids in it. They just, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, who knows what they went on to. Uh, you know, they could have, you know, you could have had Michael Caine floating around in there, or, or all sorts of people. Victor Harrington, yeah, Victor <laughs> Harrington as a child, yeah, uh, could have been floating around and, and they're not mentioned. So there's a lot of uncredited or, or just you know, not listed people, uh, unfortunately, in this. But we do have eight people who are making their second appearances, okay. uh, which is, is very nice. We've got Anthony Bird, which is previously in Crest File. As you say, director-wise, we've got um, Charles Crichton, who uh, was previously um, was the Lavender Hill mob yeah. um, and uh, will be a uh, future inductee. Um, obviously, as you've said, there's no, any number of future things he's in that we'll be covering. Roland Culver, uh, Holly and the Ivy, Robert Hammer, or Hammer, 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 um, which, as you've said, it is uh, always rains on a Sunday. Sally Ann Howes, Admiral Crichton. Ah, um, will yeah. be actually other things as, as well yeah. because she had a, a career. Ralph Michael was um, actually in a film called Night to Remember. Which of is, of um, course he was. <laughs> there always has to be one person <laughs> who's in Night to Remember. Yeah. Naunton Wayne was in Pathbox Pimlico and of course uh, known to us and other things as, as well. Coming up um, And of course uh, Googie Withers was in um, Always Rains on a Sunday. Yeah. So they're the ones making that second appearances, and particularly people like Googie Rivers will uh, will be in um, as a third uh, before long. Uh, we do actually have four people uh, making their debut in the uh, Hall of Fame, having had three appearances now. Excellent. Okay. Um, Mervyn Johns. Brilliant. I think this yeah. is Mervyn Johns' best performance, to be honest, guys. We've seen him a couple well, of times. I knew him from uh, Scrooge. I suddenly realised. I think that's the only other thing. I must have seen him in other Well, ones, Stephen, to tell us yeah, what we've covered. Scrooge. That's one of the ones yeah. that we've covered before with him. In oh. he is in a lot of other things. And to be perfectly honest, he doesn't always have a central part in this. He's usually a support. Yeah, Scrooge. You're absolutely right there, Anthony. He was in that, and he was also in the Rebel. Yes. Mm. And I believe yeah. isn't he the father of Glynis Johns? I'm sure he is. Yes. Yes. I believe. I'm sure he yeah. is. Yeah. We also have Peter Jones. Um, Wasn't he the not, bar? Not the not the not the very tall entrepreneur. But, um, <laughs> the, um, yes, he's the barman in yeah. the golfing um, sequence. Previously, he was in uh, Chariots of Fire and Private's Progress. Okay, yeah, makes sense. Basil Radford. Um, ah, he's got him before Norton Wayne. The next one. Okay. But yeah, so um, he was in Passports Pimlico and Whiskey Galore. He was the uh, the sergeant colonel or whatever he was wasn't he on the island that's right yeah yeah that's right and then uh the last person making their, their entrance into the, the hall of fame is uh, michael redgrave oh fantastic uh, so um previously royalty. in the innocence because we did do the innocence previously mm-hmm. um and dan busters of course what else so, yeah. yeah we do have somebody making their fourth appearance uh which is the uh, the writer uh tibby clark 
Ah, I was going to ask about that. I wondered if you'd included him. Six for parents for our favourite Basil Dayton. Um, ah, brilliant. Which, which you know, Sixness. that'll that'll continue to to grow as well. But um, we have lots of affection for his work, and um, we'll be revisiting again and again and again. We'll cover um, everything that he's done at some point, mate. I think <laughs> I would imagine so. Yeah. It, yeah, because everything was was quality that he did. But and you're right that this is very early in his career. Yeah. He'd, he'd really only been assistant directing or, or assistant producing or whatever previous to this really this was one of the first things that he did where he was actually you know director in his own right as it were so that's great to have him uh, and finally we have one person making their eighth appearance wow okay um which is uh miles Mousen. <laughs> eight for a, yeah for a man that never really had a starring role certainly <clears throat> not in the eight we've seen no just one the only thing i've seen him in is peeping tom I remember. Have you got the eight there, Stephen, to give an, uh, an I idea? Can, if you just give it a second, yeah. I can tell you who the eight are um, with regards to himself. So, <laughs> take a deep breath yeah. for, uh, for what he was in. He was in Scrooge, obviously. He was in uh, 39 Steps. He was in Admiral Crichton. He was in Heavens Above. He was also in uh, Gideon's Day. He was also in The Man Who Never Was, uh, as I said, Private Progress, for some of the others before, and then he was in this. So, so uh, which version of 39 Steps is that? The, uh, the original oh, version. Yeah, right. He's been in the Hall of Fame as, you know, fully as a full-fledged member of the Hall of Fame since our 29th episode. There you go. So, and he will keep cropping up because he's in things like the history of Mr. Polly, Kind Hearts and Coronets, Peeping Tom, yeah. as you say, Carlton Brown of the FO, uh, I'm All yeah. Right Jack, all of those sort of things, you know. Um, 139 credits, acting credits to his name. So, Yeah, and, um, you know, he's very distinctive. It's not like some that have uh, massive amounts of, of appearances, but we don't actually necessarily recognise their face. Um, him, uh, we recognise him every time we see him, frankly. Mm. Yeah. Okay, that's wonderful. So that's an eighth appearance for Miles Mallison. And again, Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time to to trawl through the, the cast list week in, week out, and, and just keeping this whole thing up to date for us. Just remember that Miles Mallison, yeah, they said in this documentary, he's actually a writer as well, isn't he? He's got hundreds of acting credits and mm. about 30-odd writing credits. There we go. Man of many talents. Nice. Okay, let's move on and... What I'm going to do, I think I'm going to hand this one over to you, Anthony, because I think, in a way, this one, I know it's not the strongest of the stories, and it doesn't quite sit right because it is the comedy part of the whole movie. Mm. But it features Charles and Caldicott, for all extents and purposes, which I know you're a big fan of this acting duo, aren't you? So, Am I? Well, you've mentioned them before. You've mentioned because with Norton Wayne and Basil Radford in previous conversations, I'm sure we've had yeah. we've had a chat about them being in uh, the Lady Vanishes amongst other. Can things. I, Scott? I was just going to request if I could do the last one because I can, love that story. You can do that one as well. That's fine. <laughs> oh, you oh, can you oh, can do them thanks. both. Um, but the golfer's story it does stand out 
amongst all the others, doesn't it? This one, guys, it's mm. different. It's very different compared to what we've seen. It, it is, and I wonder whether the if it didn't have HG Wells's um, name attached to it, whether it might be held in. You know, might have, have not actually made it to the to the cut, as yeah. it were. I'm you know, wondering if that actually gave it more cachet than it maybe deserved compared to the others. Um, because, I, I, you know, out of the ones there is, I think it is the weakest. Not to say it's bad, because there is still some good in it, but it, it, it does a, have a different feel, like you just said, to be a bit more humorous rather than it being spooky or, or unsettling, which the others are. I think there's one spooky bit is when he goes into the lake. That is that, That's very unsettling. Actually. Yeah, but other than that, yeah, I'd say it's the weakest because I don't remember Lady Vanishes, but I do remember they're being shot at one point. I don't remember that film very well, right? And they're kind of they're kind of saying it like it's a bit of a, a laugh, or I think it's I think it's a really delicate one to do. And there are some really funny bits in that story, but I'm just not sure. I think on the documentary they said uh, they positioned it just before the ventriloquist quite deliberately. To sort of almost lull the audience into a false oh, sense of security, yeah, yeah because light like relief before the um, the more yeah. unsettling, yeah. I mean, it's, it's you know there is unsettling bits in it. It's a bit unsettling mm. the idea of having your 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 dead best friend just a few meters away on your wedding night when you're first getting into bed with your 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 wife, um, unless you're into that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so that's <laughs> a bit it, unsettling, but but otherwise, um, it's a bit more light hearted compared to any of the rest of them really yeah of course with the wedding night you know since they're golfers we'll let the audience make their own puts him off his stroke jokes you know <laughs> yeah, we, we, would, we wouldn't sing yeah. that low yeah we wouldn't sing that low obviously see, yeah, it'd, be, it'd be below par for us to do that <laughs> absolutely oh dear lord there's me holding back on my googie withers joke and you two are flying off with the golfing <laughs> jokes uh I was just looking briefly at a synopsis of the actual H.G. Wells story, and it's not really, really lifting too much from it, apart from that intricate series of gestures that he makes to disappear. That is lifted directly from the H.G. Wells story. But the rest of it really isn't. It's nothing to do with golf or, you know, the two friends and the rivalry and stuff like that, from what I can make out. I think they were using H.G. Wells' name uh, pretty much, pretty much just in case. It's one of these things where they're put inspired by rather yeah. than in modern times, inspired by rather than... Um, it's inspired by a true story, which means that it's yeah. not in any way linked to actually being true at all, yeah. ever. And, and quite rightly, this is the one that's directed by Charles Crichton, who would go on to direct mm. some of the more famous of the Ealing comedies. So, does this sit right with you guys? Does it? It's, because this is one of the ones that wasn't included in the American version. And mm. was it the, the one with Sally Ann Howes? The Christmas party was was removed as well, wasn't it? I think these were the two. Yeah, and they seem the weakest to me. Mm. Seems quite clear. Yeah, you know, of course, it's all opinion, but but then it wouldn't make any sense at the end when everybody reappears, which, which we'll come to in a minute. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, if you very... want me to tell you the the story, it's pretty simple, really. Mm. It's yeah, two two guys apparently best friends, and they're best friends except when they're on the golf course. Yes where they're deadly rivals and then they fall for the same woman. And, um, yeah, there's some great stuff. I, I love the scene where the, there's the three of them at the bar all with their elbows on the bar with the woman mm. in the middle, <laughs> all, all trying to like work out, Oh, how, what are we going to do about this? Yeah. It's just completely bizarre. I love it. Like, like 
Like the women apparently will be happy to go with either of them. Yeah. Whoever wins the golf game. <laughs> Mary seemed to look on them with equal favour, and the result, of course, was complete deadlock. We can't go on like this, old man. She's ruining my game. Mine too. Every time I take a stroke, I see her wretched face. I keep on hearing her tiresome voice, just as I'm swinging. They'll be raising our handicap soon. She must choose one of us. But there's nothing to choose. We're both as good as Bobby Jones. Very nearly. Wish you were dead, old man. You're just as good if you were. George, I've got it. What? We'll play for her. Tomorrow morning, 18 holes. Match play? The loser to vanish from the scene. Forever. Pretty there, then. Of course. Why didn't we think of it sooner? And I love also that they're, they're constantly talking about oh, the, how their golf game is suffering yeah. because they've both fallen for this woman. It's, a, it's, it's actually a brilliant... I, I bet it wasn't meant like this, but it's actually quite a good social comment on, on golf, really, isn't it? Well, the thing is, um, aren't they obsessed with cricket in The Lady Vanishes? Because they're trying, uh, to, get the, they're yes, trying to get the test it's... match results, aren't they, guys? Is that... That's... Well, they're being yeah, shot they're... at. Yes. Yeah, there's a, a couple of, I think it's not just in that, I think there's cricket is mentioned in one of the other um, appearances yeah. that, made, that, was, that was kind of part of their their character. But um, no, I mean, what, what you're saying there about the, the, the cultural inferences about golfers, it's when he eventually is being haunted. One of the conditions of stopping haunting is that he, you know, divorces his wife and never sees her again. And that's something he agrees to readily. But then the idea that he would never play golf again, that suddenly is a deal breaker. <laughs> that's it, yeah. I love it, yeah. So they have a game of golf to see who will get the girl, so to speak. And one of them cheats, clearly cheats, Definitely. declares yep. he's had two strokes instead of three. Yep. Yeah, as I said, this is this is generally unsettling. Without saying anything, he just walks into the lake, and yeah, I think you can see his hat, can't you? It just floats <laughs> this is a trope, yeah, it's... a trope that's been done in loads of films. <laughs> after that. Genuinely, yeah. you know, well, doing the gentlemanly thing, which to, to the extreme, just walks into mm. the lake and drowns. Again, it's it's the comedic part of it. For me, it is it is the one that I've always had problems with, but at the same time, it's still it's still funny. It's still a funny little segment. It's a standalone thing as well. You could quite happily just put that as a 10-minute short at the beginning of, of the course. movie, couldn't yeah. you, this whole thing? Yeah, it works. It works as a little short story. It yeah. could almost be like a B film. I suppose it's too short for just that. Just a but. little, yeah, in a double bill or something, you know, just as a taster. Yeah, so the guy who dies starts to haunt his friend and is affecting his golf game, which is awful. Mm. And But then, uh, what was it? He can't disappear i know he loses the ability he has this little routine he does so he can disappear yeah but then it goes wrong so he's basically following his friend as i said into the into the honeymoon bed and then his his friend kind of does a similar movement is that is that sort of inadvertent no he's, he's, he's trying to show him how to do it. he said well it must work uh, or something and this is what and he gets the sequence right with the final movement of his hands doesn't he or something which causes him to disappear but then we have to presume then that the wife once he's gone the wife can see the other guy <laughs> otherwise there'll be no one there to satisfy her in the i know i don't know and then <laughs> i think men of that era didn't particularly uh you know excel at, at um satisfying wives in a way so um... yeah yeah it's just a routine yeah yeah 
Especially not if they were golfers. I think they had other things <laughs> yeah. on their mind. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. the bizarrest of the stories. One because of the. I'm make a joke then about about golfers wanting to do it in the minimum number of strokes, but there you go. There you go. <laughs> endless, endless uh, scope for stroke jokes. Yes. <laughs> We'll leave that to our friend in Swaziland who's listening. <laughs> if he is listening. So, does it does sit fine for you guys? Is it does it bother you this particular story in any way? It doesn't but no, it doesn't bother me, no. It's uh it's just yeah, it's it's the one like if you were gonna I mean there is an argument for saying this whole film, you could have done four slightly longer stories or, or lengthened out yeah. maybe the her story or whatever, you know. It doesn't bother me. It, it, we've said it's stylistically a bit different, and maybe that is intentionally as a light relief before the the heavier, darker yeah. next one to come along. But if you had to pick one to take out, this would perhaps be the one to take out. I would suggest. But I don't have a problem with it being there because it, it has its moments, it has its uh, oh, chuckles yeah. to it. It just doesn't quite sit in the same vein as, as the others. The others sit easier together than this one does, that's all. But I think um, you are quite right that this is sort of like a palate cleanser before we go into the full-blown terror of what's coming up. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, it's quite, it's well, quite I outrageous. I not what you'd said, so I must be right. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's funny, it's completely outrageous as well, if you think about the woman as well. I don't know what women think when they watch this. The idea, like I said, she'll go with he'll go with either of them, and she's happy to discuss it with them as well. It's uh, funny. It's yeah. bizarre. I, I think it? I find those two guys quite annoying. I think if you like them, that would make a difference. But I'm not in a rush to see all the other films they made oh, together. See, I thought you were a bit of a fanboy <laughs> of the old Charters and Coffee Cart <laughs> no, or, or no, Parrot no. and Potter, as they're known in this one. Yeah. Ah, right. No, I think I just pointed them out. What, what were we watching? What did we review when we mentioned them then? Wasn't the lady vanishing? Well, in the in the the third man, they were meant to be appearing. I think, if ah, I remember correctly, they were meant to appear, but they were amalgamated into the Wilfred Hyde White character. Uh-huh. Um, whereas they were meant to be the, doing their stick separately. There we go. Um, I think that yeah. was where the, the mention mention came along, and we did discuss whether it would have been better having them as separate characters, or whether it was better just having them as one. But. Um, no, yeah. I think they're fine for a short story. Yeah, as I say, <laughs> it, it just leads perfectly into, for me personally, the the highlight of the entire movie. I think this is true for many people. It's it's the thing you remember most about this movie. Mm. It's always used in any of the promotional photos or posters. Um, it's one of the finest performances by Michael Redgrave. It is chilling to the bone, mm. and I'll let you take it away, Anthony, and just give us an idea of what we're going to let ourselves in for for the next sort of like 15, 20 minutes. I'll just go briefly through this because there's, there's so much into it in it. But um, yeah, just, just the psychology aspect of it. I absolutely loved it. So so after everyone's told their stories, uh, suddenly the doctor pipes up. He says, well, I've got a story for you <laughs> that will uh, blow your socks off. Yep. So yeah, it's a story of um, ventriloquist Maxwell... I think his name is played brilliantly played by Michael Redgrave, yeah. who apparently was going through a lot of um, uh, personal troubles at this time. wasn't sleeping well, was missing his family. I think he was away or something like that. So kind of channeling it a bit, not exactly method acting, but more like channeling your personal life. 
Um, so he's this ventriloquist with this uh, wonderfully creepy doll called Hugo. Mm-hmm. And um, just one thing, uh, I didn't notice in the credits who did the voice of Hugo. Was that was that actually Michael Redgrave or was it someone else? No, no, it was a uh, famous ventriloquist uh, okay. uh, who was famous after this film. And it was actually his father who uh, that also provided the, the, the dummy. Uh, I'm trying to remember the, the name um, of who it who it was um but yeah that that's who did the actual uh that provided the voice as it were as i say michael redgrave you know at least then he, he wasn't quite talking to himself but um mm. i can i think it's done in such a way in which it's close to his his voice when it actually you know isn't necessarily him at, at all i think it's john mcguire because there's a guy listed in the credits called john mcguire playing hugo fitch Oh, there you go then, yeah. I'm, I've got Archie Andrews in my mind. As, well, Archie Andrews, uh, was it Educating Archie? Is that the same? Because Arch, Archie Andrews. That's he was That, that was a famous ventriloquist dummy in, yeah. in the 50s, because that's and where that Tony Hancock And it's the guy, who, the guy who who did that ventriloquist dummy. That was Peter dummy. Bruff. It was, his, it was his... Oh, so Peter Bruff. Peter so it's Bruff his was father, uh, Mr. Bruff Sr., ah. was the person who, who did the... Um, the, the the voice of the the doll, uh, oh. as well as actually supplied it, if, if I remember correctly right. from previous mm, okay. readings. But I can't. Right. I haven't. You know, I'm not. I'm not. You know, good enough to make notes. I'm just um, check specifically, it. so it's pulling it from my memory. Yeah, because Peter Bruff was famously like the ventriloquist that um, was was in charge of Archie Andrews, and there was a radio show called Educating Archie that I think Max Bygraves first appeared on and Tony Hancock. Let's have a look. It doesn't actually say, but I, I can believe that. That's, that does make sense. You know, there seems to be, at one point in history, there seemed to be a, a sort of singular style to ventriloquist dummies. You know, they all pretty much look the same, not like, you know, in more mm. modern times, since yeah. perhaps the 70s even, where, the, you know, the, you've had all sorts of, of other styles of, of dummy they seem to all ventriloquist dummy all looked exactly the same up until <laughs> a certain point yeah um, it's true yeah, yeah cut from a mold yeah that that's my memory that it was uh whoever whoever peter buff's um father was he was the one that supplied the dummy and did the voice there you go right well mm. peter buff's father and grandfather were also ventriloquists it says here oh, okay, okay. All right, I'll carry on with this. Yeah, so um, so they, you see them doing the show, and Hugo is this uh, is the character is very cheeky and sort of insulting people in a comedic way, obviously. And you kind of it's a weird sort of su- suspension of disbelief in a way sometimes with the ventriloquist because you have to remember that all the lines are obviously coming from the ventriloquist. But in this story, yeah, Hugo is very it's sort of made it can be made to look very creepy. It's kind of like clowns, you know. Yeah. Uh, with the right setting and the right music and the right lighting and everything it can look very creepy and so, china uh, based dolls yeah yeah definitely yeah mm. and then the sort of third character is sylvester key who is another ventriloquist and i thought this guy was brilliant as kind of, almost like the straight man of the story yeah the guy who's reacting to all this weird stuff so he goes to see um the show and then at one point frere brings the doll over to talk with sylvester key and the doll's winding him up and again, you have to remember that it's ostensibly it's Maxwell Frere doing these lines, but it's so realistic that I think at some point Sylvester Key says something like, "Oh, this fella's almost human." That's one of the lines. Yeah. 
and then there's a really creepy bit where I think Sylvester Key goes to visit Frere and he walks in the room and the doll's there, Hugo, and they start having this conversation. <laughs> and then Maxwell Frere comes out of the bathroom, sort of very sort of being cleaning up or whatever, very matter-of-factly, and, and it's clear that, you know, he hasn't been controlling Hugo. Because Sylvester Key says, uh, oh, I'd really like to know how you do that trick. That's very impressive. Yes. <laughs> the Maxwell Frere is clearly very good at it anyway, sort of a bit of a legend in the in the industry. Yep. But then he's doing all these apparently uh, almost like magic tricks. And uh, I noticed as well that he has a picture of Hugo on his sideboard. <laughs> and you realize after a while they're, they're almost a bit like a married couple, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. There's this marvellous sequence here as well where he tries to shut Hugo up and it bites him. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah, and uh, Sylvester Key sees this. And he looks down and he's he sees kind of, the blood. He's kind of yeah. us, isn't he? He's the audience. Yeah, he? and he sees the blood and it's like, well, that's a bit, uh, you know, too extreme, you know. Yeah, how are you doing that exactly? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and then um, there's a scene in a, in a bar. We obviously see that Maxwell Frere has got a serious drinking problem. Yep. Seems like... And um, yeah, I think, and then Hugo apparently, in inverted commas, ins, uh, insults a uh, woman in a bar, and then the guy sort of punches the, the guy that they're with. The two women are with punches Maxwell Freer. Mm-hmm. And as it goes on, it's just uh, yeah. There, uh, isn't there a bit where the, the doll sort of going, "Oh, can you rescue me?" or something like that? It's it's very very bizarre, but just brilliantly done. For an old for an old film like this, it, it seems a very kind of ahead of its time as well. Of course, they made a film called Magic with Anthony Hopkins, yes. which I've seen once. I don't remember a lot about it, but you yeah. know, there's so much scope. Oh, again, this is a, this has been in things like Tales of the Unexpected and Twilight Absolutely. Zone, and all. This is probably the first time we've really seen it. Though this is what we keep saying, isn't it? This this film, 1945, gave birth to stuff we've seen. Time and time again, many years later, and this is the yeah, origins absolutely. of a lot of great ideas, you know, and influenced so many people, as we've said right from the beginning. Yeah, so anyway, so um, I think, what was it, Frere comes to Sylvester Key's hotel room in the middle of the night and find, and says, oh, what have you done with Hugo? And he finds Hugo in a trunk or something. Yeah. Uh, which, we, we don't really think that Sylvester Key's taken Hugo, so Hugo's up. <laughs> Must have got there of his own accord. <laughs> Frere shoots Sylvester Key in sort of drunkenness and paranoia. Yep. And then uh, the doctor, the German doctor from the story, visits Frere in jail. And this is brilliant. Hugo is mocking Frere and saying, oh, you know, you're going to go to jail. And uh, I'm going to go with Sylvester Key. So it's brilliant. Like, uh, almost like love triangle after a while. It's brilliant. <laughs> and Hugo says, you know, I've got my career. I wish I could do the voice, but I won't. Yeah. I've got my career to think of. And then, and then hilarious, well, not hilariously, very, very weirdly, Max, Maxwell Freer goes to strangle Hugo. And you can hear Hugo, like, struggling. <laughs> but what I thought was brilliant was that they all, someone sees it and they all go in to it's essentially save panics. the dummy. The so they've panics. all bought into yeah. the idea that the doll is real, yeah. haven't they? He, he calls brilliant. out for help, doesn't he? Guards, quick, come on, he's, like, he's killing this <laughs> ventriloquist dummy. Absolutely amazing. And then the very last one is... Again, like the pièce de résistance, they go in to visit Frere, and he's got this sort of very strange smile on his face. He's unshaven. He's got this sort of little boy. He almost looks like Hugo, doesn't he? Basically, yeah. Got a weird smile on his face, and then says in Hugo's voice, "You know, I've been waiting." Oh, I can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Rewind, edit. 
I thought you'd practicing... been doing it throughout the entire podcast. Been I've been practicing this morning, but it just wasn't working. Uh, he so talks in you. Your hand up your own bottom that's <laughs> So he talks in Hugo's voice and said, I've been waiting for you. And then it's clearly influencing Psycho, of course, as the well. Because you get, you get a kind of an explanation, which some people think that that kind of ruins Psycho at the end when they explain yeah, the sort of Norman's mother. In. And the doctor, I think, I think, sort of explains it. Oh, Max was speaking for Hugo, but is under his control. So, at certain times, I was saying earlier, you can see when they're doing the ventriloquist act, you can see Freya's lips moving. So, I think he's controlling Hugo's voice, but psychologically, he's under the control of Hugo. Yeah. Some weird sort of form. But then, obviously, there's bits where you can't explain it, like the bite marks. Yeah. But uh, I, just, I just think it's fantastic. I'm going to throw it to you now. I've had enough. I'm going to throw it to Stephen, first of all, because I, I just think this is the, the, the highlight of the entire movie. Uh, it's the most standout performance. It's the creepiest out of all of it. So, Stephen, go on, just tell us what you think, mate. Yeah, there's there's many fine points to, to raise on this. I mean, one of the, the, the bits is that it's, it's a, a sort of transition with regards to the Doctor coming from the point of view where he's you know describing everything as being even when he's telling the story he's trying to say that you know that that freya had already taken the doll with him and you know when he he went to discover it in the other guy's room and stuff like this he's trying to make excuses but then he's admitting that some of it can't actually be explained away and that there's more to it um which transitions into what's happening with the rest of them but you know it's extraordinary you know performance as well as the the way in which it's 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 scripted and and shot because like you say that there's some of the ways that in which the doll is shot that that actually does um give you the full creepiness of it being animate and and having life of its own mm-hmm. um rather than it being you know i would imagine shooting a, an inanimate object uh, such as a doll and trying to make it look like it's alive mm-hmm. is is difficult um mm-hmm. and, but certainly you know Kind of from the beginning of this, you you see um, Hugo the the doll has been a, a, an alive character in this rather yeah. than just a prop, mm-hmm. um, which you know then leads the rest of it to fall fully in place where you you see that there's this conflict, um, whether it's it's channeling the voice or whether it's actually uh, in control it, it is is where it goes and the descent into madness and you start wondering about how. Like you say, Freya then, you know, being commit, you know, sentenced to death or sentenced to jail or whatever, leave the the, the doll abandoned. Then mm. has it got its hooks enough into somebody else to come in and and collect it? If that's the way that the the story is, so it's it's one of those that makes you think as well as it just being one that um is like the as I say the one I you know I like with the mirror, that's um interesting and well done but this one sort of leaves you thinking more about it afterwards because of the um it's not quite as conclusive there are question marks over what actually uh, was happening and whether it can be still explained by a logic like the doctor's trying to do or whether mm. you've got to abandon that entirely absolutely this is building to the to the, the finale with this uh, right right position for it to be where it is in in the oh, absolutely the, yeah. the catalogue of stories it's the ambiguity, mate, isn't it? As well as as mm. as Anthony pointed out, you know, the bite, you know, the bite marks from the ventriloquist dummy itself from Hugo is like, well, how the hell did that happen? 
And also, mm. as you said as well, you can see his lips moving, so there's obviously some control of the voice. But have you noticed the bit in the bar where Redgrave's getting drunk and they're facing away from the bar and Hugo's mm. sitting on another bar stool? You never see mm. Redgrave's hand touching the doll or behind the doll at all. And it almost it's almost as if he's sitting separately from in, in two separate chairs mm-hmm. away from each other. Have you noticed that? Because it's it, because then when he gets punched he falls to the floor and the doll sort of slides down as well. But there's no <laughs> physical yeah. interaction between the two of them. Look here, old man, you better apologize to this lady. Huh? What did you say? I said you've insulted this lady. And I said you better apologize to her. Sure you are. And the slightest intention. Lady? <laughs> what lady? Maxwell, I don't see no lady. Look here. Are you going to apologize like a gentleman? Or do I have to make you? Who does this guy think he is? Will you kick his teeth in, Maxwell, or shall I? <laughs> you asked for it. Now then, gentlemen, no fighting in here, please. Ah. Cut it out. Cut it out. The guy's thinking. What's it got to do with you? I said cut it out. Go on, scram. All right, no need to get tough about it. You all right, Fred? You go. Oh, come on, girls, drink up and let's get out of here. Come on, please, it's past time. All right, all right. No. Your... Here he is. Take him. Well, it's my old friend Sylvester. <laughs> ah, that's better. Good night, Jack. You shouldn't have done that, you know. Oh, no, just one of those things. Are you staying in the hotel? Room 791. We're all right. Sure you are, sure you are. I'm just going up to my room and I'll I'll see you home. Seven nine one. So you yeah, start don't questioning, don't you? You say, "Well, hang on, what's is is this real? Is who's controlling who here?" Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, I think I was focusing more on the voice than yeah. the actual operation of the dummy. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking more of the voice. Yeah, but there's no physical but contact in that scene in the bar as well. When you look back at it. And I wouldn't go around calling him a dummy either. You might, you know, might come and visit you tonight if you call him a dummy. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Do you think uh, another another way they could have done it? Because I, I don't really remember that film Magic. But while I was watching this, I was thinking you could easily extend this story out, you know, to forty five minutes or an hour. I think because yeah. you could have that. What they could have done, I was thinking about. They could have made Hugo a sympathetic character somehow, where they they didn't really, and then they could have made it so. Sort of psychologically speaking, that maybe Frere had planted the dummy in the other guy's Sylvester Key's room because he somehow wanted to get rid of the act or something. I don't know. They didn't really go down that route, but they could have done so much scope. I think with this one, it's a great premise. As we've said, it's it's positioned perfectly in the film after the lightheartedness of the Charters and Caldercott episode. Mm. We are just plunged headfirst into. It's a roller coaster almost because it gets even even more terrifying in the last five ten minutes. Amazing! I'm just checking magic. I haven't seen magic for a long, long time. Yeah, uh, I've seen it literally once, I think. Basically, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll read you the synopsis to magic. Right, magician's assistant Corky Anthony Hopkins performs disastrously as his first solo appearance. He's given a ventriloquist dummy called Fats to improve his act. Within a few years, Corky is at the height of his fame. However, Fats has developed a mind of his own and wants to control his master. Well, read into that what you will. So um, mm. I may go back and watch that because that's a... Yeah, I'm thinking I might as well. <laughs> yeah. I remember seeing it when it very first got its first TV premiere in the early 80s. You know, it's a Richard Attenborough movie of all things as well, believe it or not. Oh, right, yeah. 
Okay, we need to wrap this up because what we then get is everything starts to get tied together. But then it also leaves it very open-ended. <laughs> um, yeah, I can't wrap my head ending. around the it's ending. In fact, I can't work ending. out right. what's happening there. Exactly. How are we going to describe this? Because all the elements start coming together, right? Of what mm. we've seen over the previous hour and forty minutes or so, and we're left thinking: it's, it's, it's this whole circular thing, right? We haven't spoke about this. The whole movie is done mm. like a circular narrative. Because the beginning of the movie becomes the end, and the end becomes the beginning. But also, all the elements of the five stories become a nightmare, mm. rather than a dream. I, I don't want to give too much away for people that haven't seen it, even though we've revealed everything so far. Yeah, we'll just leave in the last five minutes for a bit of mystery. <laughs> because, <laughs> because if you think that the ventriloquist segment is incredible, amazing, unsettling, creepy, whatever, you wait till you see the end. I don't want to give too much away, guys. Help me out here because it's. Am I right in saying that all the elements come together, but you are still left questioning at the end? Is this whole movie a dream or is the movie about to be concluded at the end? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's cyclical. Definitely. Yeah. You know, yeah but he... And you've got to try and work out how how that actually plays out because it's not just straightforward in that. That sense, as you do get with some some other films out there that have done that kind of thing, it, this isn't as straightforward um, in that that way. Yeah, but he he wakes up from the nightmare, right. gets a phone call from the from Invited the Elliot Foley guy, the or his wife takes yeah. it. Yeah, and then he drives to the house, and it starts all over again. Now, Kim. Yeah, Newman, but when's he awake? When's he awake? Right. See, this is what Kim Newman pointed out on the documentary. He says, all the way through, up to this point, we've seen it all from Mervyn John's point of view. You know, he's always been present when the stories are being told. He's, you know, we've, we've just seen everything from his point of view. We then get the sequence where he wakes up in bed to the telephone ringing. And it's the guy at the country house in the cottage ringing him, inviting him over. And Kim Newman pointed this out. He said, well, that's the first bit that takes takes us into another viewpoint so it's when it repeats itself now is this the final time he will have the dream it, it, it makes sense when you watch it but at the same time it just leaves you with a thousand different questions and and mm. this really blew my mind when i heard this there's there's a theory isn't there that steady state theory did you see this Oh, to do with cosmology. Yeah, Fred Hoyle yeah. and all those guys. The circular oh, nature right. of the film inspired the steady state theory of the universe. But I don't understand this. This is way above my you know knowledge. But the theory holds that both the universe is expanding, matter's being continuously created to maintain a constant average density. It's, it's just never-ending sort of thing in a psych circular mm. nature. Um, and this movie led to that theory, which is generally believed by a lot of famous scientists and people far more educated than me you and everybody else it's incredible this is it's, all... it's the, the the idea that this is cyclical and, and the, the thing that's unnerving about that the you, you think about it deeper yeah is the idea that it's inescapable um and that's where you you, you get into a the fear 
that that you know there's nothing you can do you're reliving the this this again and again and again which is a horror in itself there's that to compact in with the rest of it as far as the individual horror you know horror stories as it were there's that that is almost a, a terror beyond mm. the rest of it because if you you know you're having to to do something repeatedly without there being the escape and the fact that he is to some extent especially when he first arrives not aware of it if that is something that is going around in a cycle it is, is you know even more powerless to to stop it even though he's got the the gradual awareness of of it happening yeah um and that that trope as far as the, the trying to get out of a of a cycle of things you know time lapse and time travel and repeating itself and all that kind of stuff he's covered in any number of films but it is quite you know quite chilling that idea um in itself along with the rest that we've already covered yeah we'll go forward about 70 years i think black mirror was pretty influenced as well there you go maybe indirectly you know because there's a few episodes of black mirror that end with like a a sort of endless spiral of hell isn't it yeah there's a great spanish movie called time crimes Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, have you seen it, Steve? The guy with the mask on his head—he he witnesses the thing in the in the in the woods. Yes, I think I have. Oh, you've got to watch it. You've got to watch um, it, Anthony. If it's, it's if that's yeah? the thing, if Spanish yeah, as well. I'm sure it's a Spanish. Yes, yeah, of course. Yeah, it's, it's it's a Spanish movie. And I'm sure it's called Time Crimes. It's only about an hour and fifteen minutes long, but what happens? You you see this cycle of events from different viewpoints and this guy influences what's happening oh nice yes it's, it's, it's a fantastic film moving on slightly from the, the title yeah dead of night it i'm not 100 percent that is the the best title for it because doesn't make sense does it, it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it sounds you know horror spooky or whatever but I mean, you know, particularly the like the golf one doesn't happen at night at all. Um, you know, okay, the fir- the first one has a the, the time stopping and I mean, you know, opening the 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 curtains to daylight and stuff. That you know, but and I know that you know what Mervyn Johns eventually does in the story, um, the the finale. You know, that is after it, it's turned to night and the, therefore there is a death after at night, but otherwise. It seems like this, the the title doesn't quite <laughs> quite mean anything in relation to the film. Well, dead of night um, just means middle of the night, doesn't it? Basically, yeah, the darkest part of the night. Yeah, yeah. The, mm. the middle point. Um, mm. Who knows? Well, yeah. Well, also the conversation they're having in between the stories is during the day, isn't it? So, yeah. another way they could have done this that I'm sure has been done since was to have it, you know, him coming to the house in the dead of night and doing it that way. But I prefer it this way in a funny way. Yeah. I think it would have been a bit too contrived if 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 sort of the conversation outside of the stories was all spooky as well. But it's not, is it? No, no. That's... It's, it's quite matter of fact. That's what I love about it, actually. Well, that's what it leads in, you know, it, it's daylight leading into this nice sort of quaint country cottage in... in in mm. Kent and stuff, so it's again, it's this false sense of of normalcy in a way that then spirals into the the, the darker. The contrast to that maybe is is useful, but um, yeah, I agree with you, Anthony. That if the if they'd forced it, that you know he'd, he'd been heading to the cottage and had broken down, and therefore he'd arrived late, and therefore it was night time rather than what it should have been, and that, uh. that then that might have been too contrived. I agree. Yes, yeah, so I don't know what would be a better title. It just occurred to me that 
it wasn't particularly apt, really, considering. Yeah, I don't know what they could have called it. Because a lot of those horror anthology ones later were things like sort of Theatre of Blood and things, wasn't it? Was that a, was that a horror anthology? Well, I feel like it was. No, but it's, it, there's different things those happening ones to different people. Yeah. Was that what it was? Yeah, yeah. Um, sort of more obvious. But, yeah. Yeah. And if it, I could just make a tiny comparison um, that I was telling you before we started recording. Mm. I watched The Haunting, yeah, the 1963 film with uh, directed by Robert Wise, who who went on to do Sound of Music, indeed, bizarrely indeed. enough. Yeah. Um, and that that film was interesting, sort of circling back to what we said at the beginning, where you, I, I like The Haunting, the sort of more psychological parts of it, but then the actual shocks, like during the night, she hears all these sounds that appear to come from the past. Yeah. It didn't really work. So there's a weird sort of understatement in this film, Dead of Night, um, which I just think really worked. Yeah, it must be very difficult to, to, to balance it all, you know? Yes, the argument, isn't it, of science versus supernatural and mm. the, the whole point of, like we said, the whole family and the guests there are very open to Mervyn Johns. They, they, they you know, yeah. they, they really sort of, not necessarily believe him, but they're gonna, they give him his chance to to say his story and then they chip in with their own stories and, and the one who ends up losing really at the end is the doctor you know who's mm. <laughs> who's valiantly trying to disprove this or make it all seem quite ordinary or coincidental um and he's the one that loses big time at the end because there's you know he's outnumbered by everybody else that's willing to they've got their own stories to tell you know yeah. Uh, interestingly, like Ealing never really made any more horrors after this as well, despite his success. Well, you quit while you're ahead, don't you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and they were oh, going, well, we can't do better than that. Let's just stop exactly. now and else and just be imitators now. Yeah. yeah. There was uh, just one little bit of trivia before we finish. Mm. Uh, a film book years and years ago, when I was first getting into films, I discovered that they actually offered a challenge in 1945 for someone to watch this film alone in a cinema. Oh, right, okay. And a woman took up the challenge and won some money. I don't know how much, like a thousand pounds or something, <laughs> which would have been a lot then. Yeah, but it was considered the most chilling. And like I say, I found it much more unsettling than this film, The Haunting. But it, I think it was considered at the time like the ultimate scary was it, experience. Was, was it an empty cinema or all the rest of the seats occupied by ventriloquist dummies yeah oh my gosh, that yeah. would be you know <laughs> there you go <laughs> that would, oh, that would be make the difference wouldn't it sounded by hugo's with that creepy voice oh well uh, yeah deal with that yeah. <laughs> that's a thousand pounds you yeah. lose yes. <laughs> okay guys Let's leave it at that because we have covered that certainly in depth. I mean, it's it's highly recommended by all of us, isn't it? This film. If if you haven't seen this movie, please please watch it. Mm. Yes, yeah, it's it's one that it, it is iconic. It does have not just for British cinema, but it does have such a legacy of what it's inspired that um, it would be remiss of anybody not to uh, who is interested in cinema, and particularly in horror, to not have, have seen this. Yeah, and I'd also say, actually, if nobody's heard of Movie Drone, go on the internet, find the list of films that they covered and work your way through those. It's brilliant. Yes, maybe, not, maybe not all of them, but... Uh, Great series. I don't know what you, about you guys, but Movie Drone just completely changed my life in terms of films. Yeah, there's some great yes, introduced me to so many good ones. Okay, well, that's Dead of Night, 1945. Anthony has very kindly agreed to come back. I think we've already announced what we're going to be doing at the next next time we're here together, but let's take a short break and we'll just discuss it again with you guys as soon as we come back. I knew you wouldn't leave me, you'll go. I knew you'd come back. 
not belong, my boy. Not belong. You're going to stop in jail for years and years and years and years. That wouldn't suit me. But you, you'll tell them the truth. You, you'll tell them it wasn't my fault. What sort of dummy do you think I am? You shot him, didn't you? Yes, but that was in self-defense. He, he was trying to rob me. Tell that to the judge. Poor Sylvester. Such a charming fellow. They tell me he's recovering. Be out of hospital soon. Well, what's that to you? Well, looks like I'll be needing a new partner. Oh, Carl. You don't mean that. You're joking. Like hell I am. I've my career to think of. You wouldn't run out on me now. I don't believe it. You wouldn't do that to me. Oh, wouldn't I? Wouldn't I? Wouldn't I? You'll go. I wouldn't let you. Can't stop me, Maxwell. You're finished. Finished. Suppose I tell him the truth. Suppose I tell him that you made me do it. Try it and see what happens. They'll put you in the madhouse. But not little Hugo. Oh, no. I'm going to team up with Sylvester. Maybe we'll come and visit you. You'll know. Private show for the loonies. Ah. Oh, Maxwell, I don't get excited. I was only joking. You know me. My fool. My fool. They can't on me. Stop here. Anthony, thanks for being here today as our guest on our Halloween episode. Marvellous, marvellous discussion. Thank you. You're welcome. You've already selected uh, what we're going to be watching next time, because I think we announced it at the end of the Third Man episode, but we've squeezed this one in beforehand. Could you just remind the listeners of what we're going to be talking about next time you're here? Yes, we apologise unreservedly for not recording this yet. <laughs> but yeah, I won't go through all that. You can go yeah. back to the Third Man episode. Yeah, it's a fish called Wanda. From 1988. Now, who um, directed A Fish Called Wanda? Lewis Gilbert, wasn't it? Oh, no, sorry, it was... Um, no, it was Crichton. Michael ah, Crichton, yes. Charles, Michael Crichton? Or, no, 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 Charles, no, Charles, Charles Crichton. Crichton. Michael Crichton wrote Jurassic Park. <laughs> yeah, who, uh, of course, directed... Ah, oh, there we go. There you go. Oh, what a brilliant yes. yeah, We didn't plan that. <laughs> we didn't plan it at all. We didn't plan yeah. it at all. But... Um, yeah, I'll do, let's direct listeners back to the, our third man episode, which was one of our best, where we Sorry, talked about Fish Called Wonder more, but it's a classic <laughs> British comedy, very much in the vein. I mean, obviously, John Cleese is all over it, so it's very much in the sort of Faulty Towers, Monty Python envelope. It's a, mod- with, it's uh, a modern Ealing comedy as well, isn't it, really? Yeah, and, and they play the sort of Anglo-American card, which works really well. Yeah. So you've got Kevin Klein in the film sort of having a go at the stuffy British and... Uh, 
John Cleese winding him up about Vietnam and various other things. So, yeah, just a brilliant film. I can't wait to watch it again. I haven't actually seen it in full for 20 years or more. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. I watched it quite recently, but I'll quite happily watch it again. Mm, yeah, okay, looking that, forward to it. Early in the new year for that one, chaps. Okay, Stephen, thank you again, not only for being here, but also for your valiant efforts with regard to tying everything together in the village hall of fame for us mate no i'm i'm happy to to contribute um for all the hard work that you do um it's not hard work you, know, you, you put these together and and you know especially trying to make um make us sound like we know what we're talking about um which is easy when anthony's on because <laughs> one because one out of the three of us does in that case <laughs> Let's leave it at that. We'll get back together, all three of us, possibly early in the new year, I think, after Christmas. So looking forward to it. Right. Cheers, guys. Thank you very much. I'll see you all soon. All right. All the best. Take care. Shah. A positive shah. Bon voyage. Good luck. Thank you. Hand up, sir. I'm sick of pains. <laughs>